0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like nostrils, knives and buttons. Oh, I'd love
1: to do something on buttons. Buttons always make me think of Christmas, would you believe? <laughs> uh, or bogs, bogs, hedgehogs and logs, dogs, cogs and eggnogs. Did you know, Sam, it's only 66 days Till Christmas, my daughters have already started playing Christmas songs and watching Christmas movies. However, they have resisted my plea to do a Christmas jigsaw, uh, (laughs) would you believe? Maybe, maybe Maybe they feel it's too early for that. However, this is to digress monstrously, as always, because we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam? Who knew... That the history of heads is, in fact, all about politics, regicide, technology, ghost stories, wooden naval vessels, Anne Boleyn, and, of course, Washington Irving. If you didn't know that, you should listen to our last episode. Or that the history of urine is all about medicine, fear, leather army boots, recycling And domestic industries. It's also about jokes. Mm. Quite literally,
0: it's about taking the urine. (laughs) We could definitely do that one. Uh, The man not sitting opposite me because we're the other side of town. Well, let's just say that if history was a drooling toddler grinning with spit dripping down, this man is the bib. He's a human scoop of spitty plastic collecting those little nuggets of facts expelled from our child of the past. It is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. I like being uh, compared to a, <laughs> a... A spitty bib.
1: Bib bib, bib, <laughs> bib, that gathers the saliva of historical uh, <laughs> fact in the past. However, the man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing in these grimmest, grimmest days of lockdown? Well, let's just say that if he were a medic in history... He'd only be Thomas Wharton, 1614-73, to 73, author of Adenographia, incidentally published in 1656, in which he wrote, this said canal opens into the throat and issues forth the salivary fluid, or if you prefer it in its Latin form, Hinc Canalis Dictis os Imperator, Humorum Salivum Imperatit. Yes, you've guessed it. He only discovered the subbandicular dust duct. Uh, he, in fact, <laughs> discovered saliva. Ah, uh, there's a a roundabout way for all of that. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous
0: historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Thank you very much. Thomas Thomas Wharton, eh? Yeah, Thomas Wharton. He didn't... Is that the poet Thomas Wharton as well, or is he a different Thomas Wharton? No idea. (laughs) No idea. he obviously didn't discover saliva. He probably worked out what it was, or the duct, or or something like that. But interesting to find out. So, yeah, uh, but it's it not gentlemen... as
1: not as interesting or as powerful <laughs> in, as an
0: introduction. <laughs> no, historically, uh, possibly more correct. He found saliva for the first time. We are doing the history of saliva. Believe it or we not, we are. Um, Sam, I I think we should spitball on <laughs> spitting. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> so... uh, this was my idea. I'm going to claim this one. Um. We are uh, thinking of going back to some more corona-related themes because uh, it's this this damn virus is not going away. We've done a loads of those. We did a load of them in lockdown. And lots of stuff on loneliness, which is quite fun. But um, we're doing uh, a spit today, and James actually used to this. Um, suggested earlier doing the history of the cough, which I think we should also do. So and the patient, um, the patient as well, is what we're going to do. Yeah, absolutely. So spit. Well, I mean. How do, you, how do you possibly go about doing it? Uh, one of the, the key things to do, I think, is to look at some some good uh, historians thinking about the history of manners, is one way of looking at it. Um 1978, Norbert Elias uh, wrote the history of manners, um, uh, was writing about the civilising process, and Spit really features very clearly in his book. And he writes particularly about how... Uh, spit once was a not only a custom but clearly a generally felt need. There was a need to spit frequently and then over time that changed. He linked spit with class. He uh, explained how um, how behaviour around spitting changed, particularly focusing on taboos in the 19th century around spitting and the transmission of germs. Uh, by saliva, which is what I'm going to be talking about a little later on. So many parallels are there, James, with what is happening today? There certainly are. And what inspired me uh, was, in fact, we are
1: living in COVID central Uh, in Exeter, its seventh uh, highest uh, COVID rate. And one of the things uh, that the noble University here has introduced is a super swift test for COVID based on saliva to keep us all uh, safe. Uh, It's very, very rapid and it means you can detect and trace uh, very quickly. So it's very effective. So there is that if we're thinking about this, if we're thinking about spitballing about spit, how you write a history of spit, there is, of course... Uh, the Norbert Elias sort of civilising process, uh, spitting and politeness. There's also the medical approach to saliva, uh, as we started off in your introduction. The great Thomas Wharton, yeah, the great Thomas Wharton, and there is, I read uh, some very um, interesting but also rather tedious uh, articles on the history of saliva and not not just its discovery, but but basically. Uh, medics over the centuries discovering the saliva gland and working out how it how it worked um it then of course is also about um it's about manners it's about disease it's about childhood culture um, i'm going to even talk about spitting image uh, mm. later on uh spitting image has just launched uh a new series it's back on our screens on britbox um, I do not have BritBox, so I can't actually watch it. Uh, but I was fascinated by it in the 80s and 90s. So I'm going to talk about that. And it's archiving in uh, the University of Cambridge. So we can go all sorts of ways. There is a material culture of spitting as well. The spittoon. I'm going to talk a little bit about chewing tobacco and and people spitting out uh, into spittoons and all over the pavement. Mm. Um so there's all sorts of ways that we can go with this. Uh, you, to be you, honest, I th- I thought I was I was um I was rather concerned about doing something on the history of saliva, but as soon as I delved uh, into my shelves, um uh, and the 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 virtual shelves of the internet. There was masses. It's an
0: enormous history. So, um, hats off to you, uh, sir. Hmm, Thank you very much. Um, It's really reassuring when you suddenly find something that you don't think has a history, but then it does. I was intrigued by how geography is linked with spitting and how there are different practices of spitting in different locations, Um, particularly in America. In well, sort of pre-war America. And in, in the mid mid to late nineteenth century as well. I've just got an account here of Charles Dickens, who toured America in eighteen forty two. He comments on um on, on spitting, or the odious practices of chewing and expectorating, as he described it. And he publishes a travelogue when he comes home, and he talks about being in Washington, DC. He describes it as The headquarters of tobacco-tinctured saliva in all the public places of America. This filthy custom is recognised in the courts of law. The judge has his spittoon, his crier his, the witness his and the prisoner his, while the jurymen and spectators are provided for, as so many men who in the course of nature must desire to spit incessantly. Wow. But I mean, just focusing there, I think it's interesting on a uh, a court. So he's obviously been into a courtroom to see what's going on there. Public access to a courtroom and notice how everyone was spitting and how he was um, completely struck by it. So uh, definitely a particularly American problem in the mid 19th century, which I thought was interesting. And, and apparently um, Supreme Court justices
1: in the United States continue to be given a personal spittoon. Mm. Or cuspidor. As the technical the technical phrase is, but also, I mean, if we're thinking around the world, uh, d- you know, different cultures have used spit in in different ways, and spit can be used to protect against evil. So mothers uh, in North India uh, spitting at their children in order to protect them. Uh, there's also spitting uh, an an oath when you make a bargain. You you spit in your hand and shake hands, and it's... it's Sort of testimony of the the, um, the meaningfulness, the honour of that bargain. So, spit can be used in in all kinds of ways. There's also an amazing uh, vocabulary of spitting. <laughs> you think about the terminology of spitting like saliva, spit, flob, gob, hockle. Hockle is, is Geordie. Vavas, which is Spanish for spit. Greener, goz. Uh, Lugie. Lugie is a spitwad. Made by sucking the mucus into the back of your throat and combining it with saliva um, a gleek Do you know what gleeking is gleeking is the building up of saliva in the salivary glands uh, using some sort of stimulus like um like um yawning or or f- sort of sour like a lemon or something sour, pressing your tongue against the glands at the back and then shooting the saliva. Out, usually at a very impressive distance. I had a uh, a girl I knew when I was younger. She was a sister of uh, one of my best friends, uh, and she could do that with spectacular wow. accuracy. Uh, to sparf is a combination of spit and vomit. Bath. <laughs> uh, mostly spit. Mostly spit. Um, uh, and a, and a, a hillbilly lava lamp. A hillbilly lava lamp is apparently a spittoon that has layers of colour due to, um, s- chewing to chewing tobacco and spit being constantly spat out onto it. And then there is a, a rinse floating on the top. Uh, preferably Mountain Dew. Apparently, uh, you should all go out and check out um, UrbanDictionary.com.
0: Uh,
1: it, it's brilliant for this kind of. If you if you come across a phrase that you have no idea what it is, uh, the lexicograph urban lexicography, is so alive and vivid. Um, I remember hearing uh, the the phrase loogie, uh in a Christopher Walken film. Uh, And he described how somebody had said that the way that he was behaving to him was like uh, the equivalent of spitting a fat or green loogie in his face. And I now know what he meant.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Well, there we go. Um, I'm going to start by just going back to America and talking a little bit about how things changed over there, what the real significant change was. I'd I'd explained a little bit about uh, Dickens' Noticed there was a significant uh, uh, cultural practice of spitting in America. And there was, and there was a massive problem associated with this, particularly with the rise of tuberculosis. So, this is the leading cause of death in 19th and early 20th century America. Uh, In the first years of the 20th century, 150,000 Americans died of tuberculosis every year. Uh, More than 10 times that number were afflicted by the disease. Now, this is interesting, uh, thinking about the impact of disease. So not only is it a human tragedy, but it was also observed that by 1900, the economic loss to the country as a result of tuberculosis was as high as $33 million. I thought that was particularly interesting um, when people, you look at the papers today with people analysing what's happening with COVID uh, and saying yes, on the one hand we have the human tragedy, but also what is the what is the impact to the world economy to specific local economies? Now, until the late nineteenth century, everyone thought that tuberculosis was was inherited; it was a hereditary disease. But it was a German bacteriologist, Robert Koch, who in, identified the tubercule bacillus in eighteen eighty two. That's the germ th- uh, theory associated with TB, and after that that becomes a huge rise in work in America trying to get people to stop spitting, Um, focusing on what was called the sputum vector of contagion. I thought this was absolutely fascinating. So beginning in 1896 in New York, you have towns and cities throughout America start passing anti-spitting legislation. And that legislation created all sorts of tensions in the lives of Americans and issues over liberty were raised um, and there were debates about that, the need to protect public health. These issues themselves often focused on class issues, who was suffering the most from tuberculosis, who, um, who was spitting the most. Uh, about whether it was um, just the wealthy who were not doing the spitting, whether it was the working class who were doing the spitting and who were suffering from TB. And actually the realities of those lines was much more blurred than many people described it as. Um, Just a quote to start with, the constant spitting upon our sidewalks, streets, houses and public conveyances has done much to disseminate the tubercular gems throughout our city, is Dr. William Munn writing in 1895. He was from Denver. Um,
1: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?
0: What was certain is that although it was no respecter of class, it was certainly noticeable, particularly among ethnic groups, became significantly more prevalent among immigrants and people of colour from the working and the lower middle classes. Um, And it was increasingly associated with poverty and crowded working conditions. There are various ways in which it was tackled. Certainly New York... Led the way with its early legislation, and then they they did something really interesting to actually which Appreciated and acknowledged just how a multi ethnic environment New York was. And these health materials were printed out um, explaining to people why they shouldn't spit. And they were printed in all sorts of different languages Bohemian, Swedish, Italian, Yiddish, English, and German. And they were then distributed throughout the city by charitable organizations into factories, into tenement houses. But at the same time, once they'd passed these laws, then it was possible to see who was actually breaking them. In 1905, there's an account in in the paper of um, how recently 10 well-dressed men were fined $2 each for spitting in one of the subway stations. And I really like this as well. uh, Ironically, in 1904 in Chicago, one of the pioneers of the entire anti-spitting movement was uh, one of the first offenders to actually have been arrested, which really made me think of um, Dr Catherine Calderwood in Scotland, um, who went to go and visit her holiday home in Fife when she was supposed to be in charge of lockdown and advising the Scottish government about medical approaches. And Neil Ferguson also did that... um, with the british government and one of the fascinating things about looking at tuberculosis and spitting in america is how many parallels there actually are um the the america america in particular suffered from a real problem with a fragmented approach to it how they were actually going to break it down and think about it in terms of this so you have a law to stop people spitting but they it was possible to kind of analyze where the cheapest places to spit were in america which i thought was absolutely fantastic In Indianapolis, you'll find around 78 cents. New York, it's 91 cents. Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Kansas City, uh, violators were charged $1. But the most expensive fine for spitting offences was levied in upstate New York where someone said, if you have to spit, don't spit in Buffalo, for it may cost you $25. Very interesting indeed, then, how so many of the themes, how you've got to educate the public, how there's a fragmented approach, how um, social, class, economic issues, were all exploded up into the air just by this desire to change people's behavior which is exactly what's happening today you're trying to get people to wear masks you're trying to get people to social distance you're trying to change people's behavior the way they interact with each other the way they interact themselves and um absolutely fascinating um maybe if we study tuberculosis in the 19th century we'll find out what's going to happen to us james over the coming months Absolutely, absolutely.
1: Now I too did a little bit of research around TB and spitting in America and one of the things that struck me is the material culture that survives. So there's a whole range of signage and posters and leaflets out there. There are posters that, um, there's one poster I have before me here which has a small man on standing on the side of a pavement, a tiny little man, about six inches tall, three fingers pointing at him uh, with the title, Don't Spit. Spitting spreads tuberculosis. Uh, and there's a, uh, a a subway train here um, which has a, a no spitting sign. There's a sign, uh, spitting on sidewalks prohibited. Penalty, $5 to th- $100. Um, another... Uh, Careless spitting spreads consumption, diphtheria, la grippe, bronchitis, pneumonia. Stop careless spitting. Brooklyn Tuberculosis Committee, 79 Schmermahorn Street. Um, And (laughs) then in in 1915, on the 14th of November, uh, published in the New York Times, was a card to warn spitters by the health department, which finds wholesale arrests ineffective. And it reads, unsatisfied with the apparently small effect which the recent wholesale arrests of spitters had had, Health Commissioner Haven Emerson announced yesterday a new policy in dealing with the spitting problem. Believing that much of the spitting is due to ignorance and carelessness rather than to a deliberate disregard of the law, The commissioner said that hereafter, while the activity of the health squad, these were the individuals who went round fining people, will not be abated. The health department will make special efforts to notify and caution violators. It's a bit like the the, the attitude towards people violating Covid restrictions uh, in the United Kingdom at the moment. To this end, the department has had printed a 125,000 cards in English and Hebrew to be handed to persons seen expectorating on sidewalks in public buildings and vehicles. The cards, which are the size of a small business card, read You are violating the law against spitting. You are subject to imprisonment or fine or both. On the back is a copy of Section 178 of the Sanitary Code, Commissioner Emerson said arrangements had been made with the Brooklyn Rapid Transport Company to have its employees distribute the notices to persons observed violating the ordinance in cars and stations. But what I really want to talk about is a particular group called the Women's Health Protective Association, which later is the Ladies, or earlier is the Ladies Health Protective Association which is a group of American women who grow up in the 1880s, uh, founded in 1884 as the Ladies' Health Protective Association, and they are concerned with improving the city's public health. They start in New York, as you said earlier on. A lot of this starts in New York, and then it spreads out around the country. Now, part of what they're doing is they want to protect their surroundings, their immediate surroundings. Um, they are they are often elite, very middle class women, and there is something about public health and safety um, that they're concerned with. But also, um, they do have various prejudices that are part and parcel of women of that of that or anyone of any particular class, and so. They wage this campaign against spitting, which is part of the uh, sort of wider uh, national comp- campaign after the the, the connection uh, with tuberculosis. Um, but there are also class prejudices. So part of their dislike about spitting is also it's the kind of people that they see as spitting. So it's the sort of working class uh, people um, living in their in their neighbourhoods, um, and they they lobby for 6 years the city's board of health uh, in new york uh, along with various other other groups one of which we I talked about already the brooklyn anti tuberculosis committee the national tuberculosis association and they get a, a really unusual ordinance in 1896 uh, against the uh, against expectoration or spitting making it illegal in public. And this leads to a whole series of signs being put up. In 1909, the new health commissioner um, enforces the ordinance much more forcefully by creating this sanitary squad. So these are people who go around uh, fining, um, fining these um spitters and also as i said handing out these leaflets uh, so that people can actually know that they are that they're that they're doing it um and i think you've touched on you know the way in which tuberculosis spreads um but it, it it's partly because what it does is along with chest pain and sweating uh and sort of high temperatures what it does is the bacteria infected lungs produce a a, a, sort of, um, a a sputum and people tend to spit it out you cough it up and spit it out on a very regular basis and there's a concern that this will spread uh, contagion and disease and particularly among women particularly among this this LHPA um, group of women they're concerned that when this stuff is spit spat out onto the sidewalks so or onto the pavements that it gets caught in their in their dresses. And this is a this would be a, a sort of real sort of problem. Um, I mean historically I think if you've got something that's globular like that and it lands on the ground, it's not going to be um aerialized in the way that we know that those sort of particles that go through masks are particularly effective. Um, but they are part and parcel of this um, movement to ban spitting on the streets. But this isn't the only thing that they did. They also managed to get manure off the streets. So slightly earlier than this, they, they mobilise around in, in 1884 um, against a man called Michael Kane. Uh, not the actor. Uh, I'm not sure he was even born. He was, certainly wasn't born, not in the uh, late 19th century. But this was a man who was the owner of a huge manure dump in the city. So he em- he employed all sorts of numbers of people, about 150 workers, to go around and collect manure from the stables and then sell it to farmers Um as fertilizer, and it was really, really lucrative. They estimate that he earned about three hundred thousand dollars a year, which is probably the equivalent of around eight or nine million dollars today. So it's big, big business. And these women decide that they are that they find it, um, you know, ab- abhorrent. That it's the smell is awful. That it's it's unendurable. It's disagreeable. It's perfectly. Frightful, they're um they they're, they're, they're recorded of saying and what they do is they send to um, the the city government um, they send them a letter of complaint tied up in a in a very sort of neat in a very neat bow and what they do is they accuse it of being a nuisance and a nuisance in property law means that basically you aren't allowed to to enjoy your property in the rightful manner, uh, free from uh, free from interference uh, that you might have if a great pile of manure wasn't there. Now, Cain um, has a brother-in-law who is a state senator, and there have been there have been cases brought against him before, and they've all been quashed. Uh, and it's thought that basically there is uh there's there's corruption in politics so what they do is they quite literally sort of twin together this battle against literally cleaning up the streets like getting the manure off there and also cleaning up politics and through a sort of re- a sort of public campaign and through the law courts their numbers grow over this period to about 300 so it's it's a quite a sizable uh it's quite a sizable group they are they're, they're criticized in the press by those sort of typical uh, gendered associations used to denigrate women of the time seen them as pernickety and 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 fussy and concerned with things but actually they managed to get the manure pile removed and also they managed to get the they managed to um, get it so that there are no permits made for the collection of manure in the city or manure dumps in the city and so they are part of looking after the public health of the city Mm. uh, in the late 19th century and they go on to have an impact in a whole series of ways around sanitation around um the the introduction of uh slaughterhouses that are sanitary sanitation in prisons and tenements uh removal of rubbish street cleaning um school hygiene um so they're a very, they're a very sort of, they're a very powerful group uh, and all connected to the history of spit.
0: Yeah, amazing. And it is, you know, such a much a broader, a broader story there about cleaning places up. Um, I'm just going to give you one little cleaning story, James, and then I think we might wrap things up for episode one. I love a cleaning story, Sam. <laughs> this, I'm all about cleaning. This is a cracker. Uh, this is, uh, I found an article written in the 1990s. Um, so it's getting to be a significantly long time ago, and it's from the uh, brilliant Instituto José de Figueredo in Lisbon, in Portugal, which is um, r- responsible for caring for um, the most significant cultural relics in Portuguese history. And I'll just give you a little bit of an abstract of this wonderful, wonderful article. Saliva has long been widely used as a cleaning agent for all kinds of surfaces and has shown good performance, especially on gold leaf objects. At the Instituto José de Figueredo, it was noticed that some conservators preferred their own saliva to any other solvent for cleaning fragile painted layers on low-fired ceramics, like clay objects, painted cork and weakened gold leaf surfaces. Their arguments were that by so doing they obtained cleaner surfaces without damaging them or their supports as can occur with the cleaning agents usually employed in conservation and it led to a scientific paper examining the value of saliva in cleaning um, cleaning things and concluded that really saliva was an exceptionally good cleaner and then goes on to explain exactly how and why but I do suspect that since the 1990s um, cleaning techniques might have moved on a little from spitting on ancient artifacts so there we are Spitting on history itself, do you ever, James. Do you ever, do you ever, do you ever use your own spit for cleaning? Um. I have.
1: Look, when you get a, when you're feeling a little bit, um, well, when you haven't got a, a detergent at hand <laughs> and there's a there is a mark on somewhere, uh, I think a little bit of spit and your nail uh, gets it off. Also, uh, breath as a cleaning agent. You breathing on things. I, I often breathe on. I breathe on my glasses.
0: Yes, that's true. Uh, so. <sighs> You missed your glasses in order to in order to clean them. I just I got visions of them breathing on some amazing fourteenth so spitting on some amazing fourteenth century triptych <laughs> <laughs> and, and using their spits to clean it. I suspect, but it, 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 you know. But pH pH neutral. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sure so, there's a, there is a there is a PhD in writing the history of using saliva, to bodily clean. fluids for <laughs> bodily fluids for for cleaning. Uh,
1: urine, urine is a great sort of cleaning uh, product. Oh, uh, was preserved uh, for many years uh, for its properties. It turns into ammonia. Um, mm.
0: yes, sir. Very good. Well, um, I think we should cut it there. I I hope you've been enjoying this saliva. Come back to us with part two, which will be on its way soon. Do please follow me. I'm on Twitter at Dr Sam Willis and check out my new podcast, which is produced um, with the Society for Nautical Research. It's called The Mariner's Mirror and it's dedicated just to maritime history.
1: And you can follow me at James Daybell, and you should definitely check out Sam's podcast. I listened to the introduction the other day, and it sounds fantastic. Um, you can follow the podcast on at Unexpected Pod.
0: Yeah, I do check out everything that James and I have done on historiesoftheunexpected.com. There's loads of stuff to be getting involved in there, and lots of material to read. Thank you so much, as always. Do please leave a review on iTunes. It makes a huge difference to us um here a couple of recent reviews um thank you very much phoebe cousins 95 absolutely faultless and makes history accessible to all five stars thank you too much to jka 29643 i lost my love of history after corn laws at school but rediscovered my love of history because of this podcast there's such an interesting variety of topics discussed with such enthusiasm smiley face five stars thank you Um, A mysterious uh, one here whose name is made up entirely of brackets and parentheses, which I like. I love this show. I love it so much. There's so much weird and wonderful information they uncover every episode five out of five. I've watched it and I love them live. And Also, this is so great in lockdown. Uh, though, here we are. One more, Rihanna. 92 This co- podcast has kept me sane throughout the lockdown. I've only recently discovered it so I'm so grateful to have a backlog of episodes to listen to and also new ones which are frequent, educational, funny and interesting. I wish I was taught like this at school. Thank you all so much, guys. Do keep, please keep in Coming, and we will give you a shout out if you leave us a review on iTunes. Much appreciated. We'll be back soon. Cheerio, guys. Bye. Thanks, guys, and thank you for those lovely um, reviews. Those are terrific, Sam. <laughs> Very, <laughs> Very happy. Yes. Bye, guys. Bye, bye.